Emmanuel, God with us. It happened this way, Lord. And we embrace that truth. Two. There we are. That was me. That wasn't you guys. Thank you so much. Hey, Jesus is the reason for the season, huh? And uh, shout it near and far. And just so you know, we are excited that we've got momentum for a tradition that we've been doing instead of the living nativity outside where everybody just dry, does this drive through. We have brought Christmas inside, and so we've upped it to the next level where we are going to be having more animals, more stuff, more things, more petting zoos. So this is really, you know, there are different times where, you know, it's, a, it's the perfect moment to invite someone to church. This holiday season in the services is that time, and we've made for you, to make it easy, these small business card-sized uh, announcements of the two services uh, for Sunday, December 23rd, the 8.30 and 10.30, same thing, both services, directions on the back. It's a no-brainer. If you would, would you please just share this with somebody? The two biggest moments of the year where people are open to coming to church are Christmas and Easter. And so why not share the love of God with them, share the opportunity with them, and uh, invite them out. I also want to just say thank you so much for your generosity and giving, for those of you that consistently, faithfully give, just like we were talking about last year, how or last year, last service, how the gifts that the Magi gave were the very things that helped sustain Mary and Joseph and Jesus in Egypt. Your generosity continues to help make what we do possible. And if you have never, if you've attended church, but you have never learned the discipleship principle of giving and tithings, we encourage you to pray about that, read about it, and uh, do that. And we also want you to know on the back, as you walk out here, if you came here late and you would like to still give a gift, you're saying, I really would love to bless the church with all that we're doing, there is a, on the wall, a box there, and you can put it in there just as easy. So thank you so much. We are on our series here called 
Holloways. And we're kind of saying, instead of happy holidays, happy Holloways. And so there are different ways that we behave and different ways that things happen in the Christmas season that are just different from any other time of year. And how many of you find that you love getting together with your family at the same time, but yet you also dread getting together with your family at the same time? I'm not even asking you to raise hands and people are like, me, 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 right? Everybody's got a crazy uncle. Everybody's got a bossy aunt. Everybody's got a mom and dad, and so we love them, but it's just, and then the, you get consumer Christmas just sweeps you away, and it's like, how many of you, you love giving gifts and you love getting gifts? How many of you, though, you hate the pressure that's on you to have to go out and shop and figure out people and get what they need to? We see those hands, and it's almost like you were a cheerleader on a cheerleading squad. We got it, me here. Yes. I think this week, what, we've been talking about this series, but we're, in this church, we're about letting God's word speak for itself, but also there's some concepts, I think, in the holiday season that happen, and just like we were talking about last week, we had that one. This week, we're talking about the idea of how hard it is to embrace the Christmas story as truth and how easy it is to let it become almost like a fairy tale or a seasonal story. You see, we don't have any problem embracing truth that we've experienced it. How many of you, when you were a kid, you touched something hot, and then it's like you get near that thing. You experience that truth, and so you respond to it. But we struggle to embrace a truth if we haven't experienced it. For instance, if I say to you, there are people living in Tewksbury, you're like, duh, of course. But if I say to you there are people living on Jupiter, you are going to be talking to a doctor concerning me because it's just, how could that be? It's just, that just doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't make sense. It just sounds kind of crazy and insane. But the truth of the matter is, is that really a lot of times we struggle with embracing a truth if we haven't experienced it. Let me tell you something, just because you haven't experienced something doesn't mean that it's true. Experience is not the measure for truth. You can, there can be something that's true and you might not encounter or experience it. There might just be a handful of people that do. For instance, too, the, just to give you an example, one of the problems I see in our day is, is subjective truth or individual truth. Like, for instance, you can be like, hey, you know, that's really good for you, but It's a little bit different for me. Or you might be like, well, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. That kind of truth doesn't exist, by the way. And I'll give you a principle for it. Let's talk about the truth of gravity. If we go up on top of this building, first of all, if you hit the ground, you're definitely dying. That's like way up there. That's where all the heat is, by the way, this morning. If you're wondering where it is, it's way up there. So say we get way up there to the heat, and then all of a sudden we both jump. When we jump, there isn't going to be your version of the truth of gravity and my version of the truth of the gravity. There is only going to be the truth of gravity, period, end of story. And I think when it comes to the holiday seasons, sometimes we get so wrapped up into it that we forget to pause and think that the things that make this season what it is, speaking about Christ, and he's the reason he established this, is because these are facts, and these are the way these things happened. And it's not a long time ago in a land far, far away, but Jesus was born. He was born of a virgin. He was fully God and fully man. He lived a godly, sinless life, and showed us that we can do that too if we allow him to be Lord of our life. He showed us not only that he would die for us, but also, more importantly, how to live for him, 
how to change the way that we live, to conform to be more like him. And then he, not only did he die for our sins, but then he rose from the dead and he gives us his promise. He says, listen, if you believe in me and you believe, the Bible says it like this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If there's anywhere in the Bible where there's a sinner's prayer that says the conditions for salvation are these, it's in the Bible under those conditions. Believe that he's Lord, believe that he rose from the dead. There were lots of people dying on the cross. There was nobody resurrecting from the grave. When you talk about the truth of the resurrection, a lot of people struggle with that because they haven't necessarily experienced that. But I'm telling you something, there are some truths just because you haven't experienced them doesn't mean that they're not true. And this morning, there's kind of a quirky, unique conversation that Matthew starts his gospel off with that we're having here today, and it reads like this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Where are you guys? Yep, there you are. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. In what way? In this way. And that's what I want to talk with you about. The birth of Jesus and how the Bible says it took place. I want to talk to you about this way that it happened, that way that it happened in the Old Testament, and most importantly, our way, and how the birth of Jesus should impact and could impact our life for so much good this holiday season and beyond. Pray with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for your presence, your truth, your power, and your word. You say that you will honor your word above your name, and so we give you permission, and we invite you and ask you to do that. Speak to us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Reads like this. Open up your Bible, your app, whatever you want to read from. I'm going to read from the SV. If you've got a preferred version and you're just stuck on that, you can totally kind of do that and track along there. We don't mind, but I'm going to read in the ESV. Nothing special about the ESV other than it's a version. Reads like this, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Did I say 18, verse 1? Chapter 1, verse 18. Keep me on my toes, huh? You ever do that? Bible college professors do this all the time. We're talking about Moses and we say Abraham. Or chapter 18, verse 1, when we mean chapter 1, verse 18. So chapter 1, verse 18. Here it goes, ready? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that prophet being Isaiah. He's about to quote Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Matthew writes it like this. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And he even translates what Emmanuel means. That's Hebrew, and it translates God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not 
until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. That phrase, knew him not, we see this in Genesis. Adam knew Eve and she conceived. It's talking about intimacy and conception. So the Bible clearly says she's with child before and Joseph knew her not. The thing I love about Joseph is this, he's a man when God speaks, he does, he acts. The Lord says, do this, don't do that. Joseph, what is he? He does what the Lord says. He doesn't do what God's coaching him not to do. It's, it's profound. God give us a life as men that we live that kind of way for our families. What are we talking about? In what way did this happen? What way? It happened this way. In fact, just not to be redundant, but just to really drill home what God's trying to say through his word, because that's the reason we're gathered here today is God's word, God's presence, God's work in our life. He says this, he says, listen, and this is Matthew saying this, who was a disciple of Jesus, who followed and walked with Jesus. He said, Mary had been engaged or betrothed to Joseph before they came together. That means before they had intimate relationships. She was found to be with child, and they said that that child was by the Holy Spirit. We're told not Joseph's kid because it says that the child that she had was by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the angel says that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, <laughs> going to, about to break off the engagement, the angel says, hey, don't do this. Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. And so what does he do? He takes her as his wife. Now, we read this story every Christmas and we're like, yeah, no problem. You ever have some kind of truth that you hear and you just kind of like, yep, yep, yep. You ever have something like your wife is saying, please pick this up, stop leaving that around. And your husband's like, yep, 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 yep. And you're like, you're throwing down some serious truth and you know it's not getting through. I think it's sometimes with this holiday season, we hear the truth of Jesus and we're just like, yep, 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 yep. Merry Christmas, right? But then take this story and put it into a modern context. You got a friend, guys. And he comes up to you and he's like, bro, I'm getting married. And you're like, no way, dude. Like, this is California, by the way. No way. Like, do you want me in your like, wedding party? Is that why you're asking me? He's like, no, no, I, you just gotta, you gotta, listen, here's the crazy thing though. She's pregnant. So your friend's just sitting there. Now he gets quiet and he's like, hmm, all right. And then he goes, but... Your friend goes, so you're going to call off the wedding, right? And he goes, no, bro. The baby she's carrying, Holy Spirit put it there. Holy Spirit put it there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have a good life. Get a prenuptial agreement because you're going to be splitting that stuff any day now. Right? I'll never forget when I was youth pastoring, I had two young people in my office at the compulsion of their mom who said, you're going to talk to the youth pastor, and they're there. And they're like, yeah, we got pregnant. We don't know how it happened. And I start laughing. I start laughing. I'm like, are you serious? And I just blurted this out. I'm thinking of Shana, right? I'm like, I blurted this out. I go, are you kidding me? I go, this isn't the virgin birth. Come on. Like, you know how this happened. But think about the logic of this. When you think about the birth of Jesus, it's like we're on cruise control with truth. And we're like, yeah, 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 born of a virgin. Blah, blah, blah. And then when you stop and you give it into a modern context, it's like, whoa, wait a second. This is pretty crazy. This is insane. And yet, why, why that way? Why would God do it that way why like that it requires this kind of like gymnastics and thought and you know it, it really makes it vulnerable to skepticism and 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 incredulity and and I, I sit back and I'm like why this way 
And God says, let me tell you, before I drill into your heart this way and how it happened, I want you to understand, uh, before you understand why it happened this way, I want you to understand how it happened this way. Before I drill into your heart, why it happened that way, God's like, I want you to understand exactly how it happened in this way. And so God comes to us and he speaks that truth and lays it out very clearly. Matthew is as crystal clear as it can be. Joseph is not having intimacy with her. She is clearly listed as a, a woman who has not entered into intimacy with anyone and yet she has a child. I don't know about you, but I struggle to embrace truth when I can't experience or don't experience it. Truths like the virgin birth, the resurrection of the dead, the second coming of Christ. However, I would say to you, just because something has not been experienced does not mean that it's not truth, nor that it ha didn't happen or that it isn't going to happen. God's word is truth. And what he invites us to do is, is to engage his truth, embrace his truth. Now, there are some people that are out there that they struggle with the truth, even when the facts stare them in the face. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you're like, you, you know what, you just look at them and you're like, all they're saying in their mind is, uh, don't confuse me with the facts, I've made up my mind, right? You're trying to talk to somebody and persuade somebody and, and they're just like, yep, yep, uh-huh, and you're like, yeah, yeah, you're just yesing me to death or whatever. And I think about that truth and I think about our truth in the world that we live in, I think about the truth of the Flat Earth Society. They actually exist. They have a website. And although we have photographs from outer space, although physics have measured the Earth and see that it's a circumference, although Magellan circumvented the Earth, or at least most of the Earth, and then his crew finished it off, although Columbus sailed across and didn't come to India and came to the Americas and came back, although we, we have airplanes that go around the world, they are fully convinced that the world is flat. Now there's two sides to when it comes to truth that's so amazing and so out of the ordinary that we struggle with it. There's one side that says, well, I haven't experienced it, so it can't exist. That, that doesn't, that's, is experience really the measure for truth? No, experience means that you experience it. It doesn't mean whether it's truth or not, no more than gravity. But then there's another side that no matter how well you lay out the argument and no matter how much you try to explain something, some people will just look at it and just say, nah, world's flat. Jesus isn't Lord. He didn't raise from the dead. It is so important that we embrace the truths that the scriptures say are critical to our faith, like the resurrection and like the virgin birth. And that we understand, like Matthew wrote, it happened this way. Listen, I wouldn't write the story this way. I would have been like, and the Almighty looked at everybody and said, man, ain't nobody got time for that. Shot a lightning bolt. And then the whole world would just come before him trembling, like, oh, Lord, we'll do whatever you want. We'll do whatever you want. Although every one of us has been in a lightning storm where it struck so close to us. We're like, oh, God, be Lord of my life. I give you my life. Sorry, forgive me of my sin. You know, just the fear of God, right? Or I would have written the story this way. And the Lord came down from heaven and gave everybody everything they wanted and brought the kingdom of heaven on earth. And, but he didn't do it that way. He didn't spoil us beyond belief and nor did he strike us with terror, fear, and judgment. Instead, he said, I'm gonna roll up my sleeves and I'm gonna enter their world and I'm gonna show them not just how good God is and what he looks like, but I'm gonna also show them how good their life can reflect his if they'll let God be born in their hearts.
I'll show them how to live the life. I mean, like I would have had the whole story wrapped up in about 24 hours, right? God shows up, kingdom of heaven. Why is this delay? And in fact, it says in the New Testament about some people that say, where is this return of the Lord Jesus? And they grow slack and they grow cynical, but he's coming back. Jesus is coming back. The baby that was born is coming here and he will judge the earth in righteousness. We will stand before God. We will give an account of all that was done in secret and in public, all that we have done that is good, that is of evil. And it is in that moment that I'm going to say, thank you, Jesus, for the blood of Christ. I stand before you forgiven. I'll never be good enough. You'll never be good enough. That's why Jesus was born to be our savior. And so Matthew says, when he writes this, he says something about a baby and he says the child, that the the woman will give birth to a child and he unfolds this thing we know as the virgin birth. And what's interesting about this is, is that the virgin birth was always a center of the gospel right from the beginning of the time of Jesus forward. For instance, if you go... Uh, to some of the earliest churches in Israel. They just found a church, by the way, in northern Jordan on the border of Jordan and Syria, a place of the land where Islam reigned supreme. It began with the gospel of Jesus Christ reigning supreme in that place. They just unearthed the oldest church in history that literally dates, they think, five to three years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. But this is the second oldest church. This one's right in the Church of the Nativity that celebrates where Jesus, they believe, was born and to commemorate that. And, and people have worked there for centuries and and right from the beginning they said he didn't just die he didn't just resurrect but he was born of a virgin in fact we know Matthew starts the story off and Matthew is literally writing from the time of Jesus to around 65 AD but he's literally telling I don't know if he's talking to Mary I don't know if he's talking to Jesus but he gets that firsthand story and he writes it down and he said listen Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And then this truth was central even to like 100 years beyond. One of the early church fathers, his name was Ignatius. How about that for a baby dedication name, huh? Good morning, we have Sari, Michelle, Jimmy, and Ignatius. It's a good name. Well, he's a good early church father. But Ignatius said this. He said, listen, the virgin birth is one of those mysteries that needs to be shouted about. The way we would say it in English is, don't keep this thing secret. You need to tell everybody how this went down, how profound, how amazing it is. And in fact, this was so important to the early church. They gathered together and they were debating, what are the things that we need to say in order to be a Christian? These are the beliefs that have to be central to you. You need to get these straight. And they talk about this. Any of you ever say that creed, if you, how many of you uh, were in the Catholic church, you've grown up in the Catholic church, right? And every week they say the creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, on third day, rose again, forgiveness of sin, you know, and I mean, like, we crank through that thing, but one of the creed moments of that is that these, this council, everybody that called themselves a Christian at this time came together and said, he was born of a virgin, period. And in fact, they ran this all the way into 450 AD where they had a final great council where they said we need this declaration made when Jesus was born into this world he wasn't part man and part God he wasn't mostly man and a little uh, and a little bit God he wasn't mostly God and a little bit man he was fully God and yet fully man and that actually is important because that means when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he's not just saying, no problem, I'm God, I can't sin. He actually knows what it's like to be tempted. You know what this is like. 
It's when you go shopping and your kid slips little Debbie snacks into the cart and they get home and you're like, where did these come from? And they start to call to you, zebra cakes. And you're like, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Some of you wouldn't have turned the stones into bread, you'd have turned them into little Debbie snacks, right? But I mean, this is the important thing is is that he's fully God, but he's also fully man, that he he is God and yet God can look you in the face and say, I understand. See, he's not looking at you saying, I'm tired of tolerating your stupidity and your bad choices and he's able to look at you with compassion and say, I totally get it. I totally get that temptation, but you can do this. You see, he didn't just come into the world and wrap it up in a week. Even though he could have done that, he did it and lived his life because not only did he want to show us who God was, but he also wanted to show us who we were and who we could be if he really was in charge of our life. He was fully God, but he was, he was fully human. He was fully human. You know, what's amazing is... Um, The Catholic Church has carried this doctrine far. Now, let me just say something precursor here, especially for those of you that are visiting. I've grown up in and around the Catholic Church. I grew up near one of the largest Catholic monasteries in the world until they moved it from Ossining, New York, to uh, Boston, where they send all the priests to train. And I have a great respect for the Catholic Church. We in this church are not about bashing other expressions of faith that are orthodoxy, that believe that Jesus is the savior, that he was crucified, he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead. We are not about bashing that. My wife and I often reflect, when we get to heaven, we're gonna see some things that we totally 100% had right, and then I think we're gonna see some things where the Lord's gonna be like, yeah, you know that thing? Kind of a little bit off on that. And be like, okay, no problem, you know? And that's the temptation of denominational thinking. You think that everybody else is wrong and you're right. But there is a difference between a cult and an expression of Christianity. A cult is groups that deny Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as the incarnation of God. Jehovah Witnesses take that stand. Mormons take that stand. Although they talk about Jesus, the Apostle Paul said this, not everybody's talking about the same Jesus. If anyone preaches to you another Jesus, another gospel, I have nothing to do with them. So understand I am not trying to bash any particular expression of of community of faith, but, but it's important for me to talk about this. The early church never, ever talked about Mary in the way that we talk about her today within those circles. There was never any mention. In fact, the only time that we see the mention of Mary being worshiped or Mary as being what we call the perpetual virginity, they, 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 what the belief is is that Mary was a virgin, she gave birth to Jesus, but she continued to be a virgin her whole life. That doesn't even keep with scripture. For instance, um, it says Matthew one twenty five. we just read, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, which is saying that Joseph and Mary were intimate after Jesus was born. It's clearly right in their scriptures. But also you read, uh, in Mark 6, 3 and Luke 8, 19, where Jesus is talking about other brothers and sisters. And, and literally, clearly, we know that there are other brothers and sisters. In fact, one of them, his name is James. And after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he becomes the leader of the church, the brother of Jesus who, who was skeptical, who didn't listen to him. In fact, one point, his family is right outside. And he says, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. He says, who's my mother and brothers? Those who do the will of God. It's, it, it's, it's like they're very skeptical of him. 
until finally he resurrects and then they are all in. And in fact, this James, this brother of Jesus, is, is literally thrown to his death off of the corner of the temple, gives his life for the truth of his brother, saying, I know he was a pain. I know like he was my little brother and I beat up on him and, or he's my old, you know, I mean, any of that kind of stuff. But he says, he's the son of God. He's, he, Joseph isn't his father. He, God is his father. I, and he rose from the dead and I saw it with my eyes. And James takes that stand. He had other brothers and sisters. Joseph was not a part of the birth of Jesus, but Joseph was completely a part of the birth of every other child from thereafter. So he was not, she was not a perpetually aversion. But here's the other thing is, is that it shifted from this doctrine of Mary being the, what they call the perpetual virginity to then talk about worshiping Mary. Let me just speak to a couple of things. First of all, I can totally throw down a Hail Mary faster than any of you. <laughs> but I've come to learn something about Mary. First of all, I think the Protestant church does not give her the respect and the hero status that she's worthy of. See, she wasn't blessed and highly favored and that's why uh, God let her give birth to Jesus. She lived a godly life and secured the favor and blessedness of God because of the way she conducted herself and God knew he could trust her with his child. And there's a difference with that. I think Mary is the example of one of the godliest girls you could, you could read about in scripture from the short bit that we have of her. Every example of her is just saying, this is how you live a godly life. This is how you conduct yourself. And in fact, when the disciples are gone, she's right there with Jesus to the end. But the doctrine of Mary being worthy of worship is not biblical. It, here's the interesting thing from church history, and t I'm telling you, I've read stuff both in the Bible and outside of the Bible. Nobody talks about this until 500 years later. Let me put this in perspective for you. America has not reached its tricentennial. We have not gone 300 years. We can't say, hey, we're 300 years old. We're not there yet. In, in 276, we will be, and hopefully we'll be there for that. But it was, take that and double it. And that's how long the church said nothing about worshiping Mary or giving her that status. It just started up as this conversation on the side years and years ago. I think that that puts it in perspective. There's no evidence of it. And here's the important thing. Just go back to the beginning of the story. None, Jesus did not worship her and none of the disciples of Jesus worshiped her. Now I'm not disrespecting Mary, but I'm trying to navigate this very sensitively because many of us who've grown up and kind of cling to that faith, listen, what do they call in football when you, you, you wanna throw the game and you need to help, do you call it a what? Hail Mary, Hail Mary. It'll save your football game, but only Jesus can save your soul. Now we don't disrespect Mary, but Jesus, in fact, in the book of Revelation, John is bowing down to an angel and he's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe the incredible things I'm seeing. And the angel says, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he takes him by the hand and says, stand up. He says, don't worship me, worship God only. When Jesus is in the wilderness and the devil comes to him and says, all of this I'll give you if you'll bow down and worship me, he replies back to him, scripture, and says, no. The Bible says, worship the, lo the Lord and alone him, him alone shall you serve. And I think that from what the Bible says, it's very clear that although we can respect Mary because she was somebody that God trusted with the birth of her son and the raising of his son. She is blessed and highly favored. She, she does not 
get from scripture the status of, of worship and deity. Do you track me on that? Just walking through that logically. The birth of Jesus Christ took place though in this way, a virgin birth, the Holy Spirit placed the fullness of God in the womb of Mary, and Mary brought him the fullness of humanity. Heaven comes down to earth. Nothing like this ever happened before, but the truth is that it took place. It took place this way. I would have done it different, but God did it in the way that he did it, that he could not only give us salvation, but also give us an example on how to live our lives the best way we possibly could through the example of his son. So it didn't just happen, first of all, in this way, but I wanna talk to you next here real quick about another side of the story. It didn't just happen this way, it also happened that way. Do you like how I mixed that up? Watch this, boom. Bam, boom, bam, boom, bam, boom, bam. This way, that way, this way, that way. You come here for the graphics, don't you, of course. It didn't just happen this way, and scripture tells us this is the way that it happened, a virgin birth, Joseph wasn't a part of the equation, it was God. But it also happened that way. Well, what in the world do you mean by that way? Well, in Isaiah, Chapter, 17, ver, uh, chapter seven, verse 14, it's, it says this, the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, and he, you will call his name Emmanuel. Now what's interesting is Matthew adds the translation there, because it was originally written in Hebrew, but he says Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let me just tell you something here today. You might feel like you could live your life in a better way and you're looking up and saying, oh God, I just need your help or whatever. Listen, God's with you. You might, you might feel like you're alone or that the problem's too big and you're wondering maybe where God is, but I wanna tell you something this morning, God is with you. And he, he proves this to us in that he sent his son into this world and says, this is the sign that I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna send my son to this world and it, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God's with us here. God's with us and he's part of our life. Now there are problems and challenges in our life, but God wants us to know that he's with us. There's nothing that will crush your confidence quicker than when somebody that you are depending on or you need their strength all of a sudden just ignores you or just doesn't give that encouragement or doesn't give that. God isn't looking from heaven when you're doing things right and saying, way to go, and then when you start messing up, he just turns his back on you and just says, yeah, you're on your own. No, God is with you, faults and all. He loves you, and he's trying to guide you here, and he's doing it that way. Now, I wanna explain this to you because this is, this is gonna be, if I, I wanna do, I wanna explain language to you. Now, if I start here and I begin to talk to you about Hebrew and I begin to talk to you about Greek and then I begin to talk to you about Aramaic and then I begin to talk to you about uh, declensions and, and tenses and all these different kinds of things, it's gonna be real confusing, but the language in this Bible verse is very important. So I wanna demonstrate this to you and to do so, I'm gonna pick a couple of victims. Shay, I'm doing it to you again, come on up here. And then Stephen Munley, why don't you come on up here? Everybody, uh, if you haven't met Stephen Munley, he's one of the office workers, and he consistently is taking things to the next level. Shay, you know the drill. Why don't you pick both of you, pick that pile up and kind of move to the center. And we're gonna kind of walk through this. So first of all, this Bible verse that in, our cha- in chapter one, 18 to 25, in there, Matthew, is writing his gospel. He's writing in the New Testament and he's writing in Greek. 
But he's actually saying this was written, this was to fulfill what the prophet had written. The person he's referring to is in the Old Testament, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, who actually wrote in Hebrew. So what language is the New Testament written in? Greek. What language is the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. Now here's the interesting thing. Matthew, when you look at language here, you're all gonna be language scholars, but if you wanna talk about a young woman, you would say nihotes. Turn to, turn to somebody next to you and say nihotes. Yeah, that's like young woman. Those of you that are older, you're like, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, nihotes. In Hebrew, you would say it like Alma, not to be confused with Amma, Echo's wife, who's here with us today. So it's, it's Alma, it's not Amma, it's Alma, and Alma is the same way that you would say it like that. Now, if, how many of you are Portuguese speaking in here? My friends that speak Portuguese, let me give you a modern day example. If I were to talk about a young woman who is of meritable age, she's old enough that she could get married, but she hasn't been married yet, I would use... Somebody's got to say that for me. I'm going to say it for you so you can laugh at my Portuguese pronunciation. Jovem adolescente. How do you say it? Huh? It was that horrible. My Portuguese is horrible. It's terrible. You'd say it like that. But if I wanted to say to you, this is a young girl who has never been with a man, in English we would say virgin, I would say it like this. Muller virgenum. You guys, it's terrible. It's confusing. It's all Greek to me anyway. So <laughs> what's interesting about this is that when Matthew writes his story, he uses the word so that there is no confusion, says she is born, she has never been with a man. Joseph had not been with her. In fact, Joseph wasn't with her even all the way up until the time that Jesus was born. Pure, totally, never been intimate. In the Old Testament, he uses a word, Alma, that kind of is basically like that word of like a young woman who is of age to be married. Now, here's the important thing. In scholarship, you always hear people say, well, the Bible says in Isaiah, it's a woman of young marriageable age, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean a virgin. Technically, kind of you could say that, but here's the point of it, is in the biblical days, you'd had to assume that a young girl who was of age to be married was a virgin because if you weren't, you were stoned to death. So when I, it doesn't matter that I don't use that perfect word, which actually the word that I would use in Hebrew is called betulia, which means the same thing in Greek that Matthew uses here for that word for virgin. So what am I saying? I'm saying like, it's crazy. Sometimes when people look at this and scholars look at it, it's like, well, we have to come up with some new idea. Here's the thing. Isaiah talks about a child that will be born and it'll be by a young woman and you'll call him Emmanuel. Matthew says, here's a child. It's being born. It's God with us. And just so that you know, without a shadow of a doubt, the woman was never with a man, total, complete, utter virgin, doctrine of the church. God thinks that it's important enough for us to make it central to our faith. I know it seems like a fairy tale. I know it seems strange. God isn't saying worship Mary, but God's saying I partnered with Mary so that I could put fully God in him and fully man so that you could see that I am not just part man and part God. I'm the best of both of them. I'm the best of both of them. Now, here's the interesting part. And you guys are full-fledged language scholars right now. Are you ready to take it to the next level? Now, Jesus is born about, Jesus is born and he's crucified about 30, 30 AD. So BC, everything counts down. 
10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. AD, all the numbers go up. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. As BC was counting down, and Isaiah was writing around 722, we'll just say when the captivity, Assyrian captivity, 722 BC, this is like almost like 800 years before Jesus is born. He's writing his story. And then in the year 250, so there's still about 300 years between Jesus coming, they decide that they need to write a Greek version of the Old Testament because nobody really, not everybody knows Hebrew, but they know Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And while they're writing the Septuagint, they have a choice to make. They know that the Hebrew word there is Alma, woman of young marriageable age. But instead of using that, they go with the same word that Matthew chooses, a virgin. They say, we're gonna use the same word here. And they're not looking to Matthew because Matthew isn't gonna be alive for another 300 years. Isn't that cool? You're all scholars. What does that mean for your life? I don't know. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars reading this kind of stuff and studying it, and I'm just trying to find a reason to do it. But this is what I'm trying to say. It's important because, uh, come down into the front. I'm not done with you guys yet. It's important because what God is saying, you could go right down to there if you would. Because what God is saying is, is listen, have no confusion about it. When my son was born, he wasn't some demigod. He wasn't some half offspring from Zeus. He was completely the son of God and completely the son of man. And he was completely the son of God so that you could see that I love you and I'm gonna do for you what you could never do for yourself, help you, save you, deliver you. But he's gonna be fully the son of man to show you, you can do this. You can walk straight in a crooked world. You can find freedom for the things that give bondage to your life because if he can do it, you can do it. Because he wasn't just fully God and that's it. He was fully man and he made it work. Now here's the interesting thing. When Isaiah talks about this story, it's gonna require us to take a quick look at it. Open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter seven. Because it's not, the language is kind of like, okay, I get it. It happened in this way and it happened that way in the day of Isaiah talking about a virgin. But what's important is the history of what's going on here in Isaiah actually has everything to do with what Matthew is trying to tell us. Starting with an illustration so you can understand this. Everybody has enemies. Some of us have frenemies. But in the days of Isaiah, at around 722 BC, and Bible called students, give me slack, I'm just trying to give some kind of marker. 722 BC, the number one bully on the face of the earth was Assyria. Now Stephen, I want you to go up to the, to the balcony up there, run up there as fast as you can. He runs marathons, by the way, so you're gonna count it. He'll be up there in about 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Zero. Steve-o, there he is! Unbelievable. Assyria is way in the north, far away from Israel, but they every once in a while would growl at the Israelites to threaten that they're coming to do it. Why don't you give us a growl? Ooh, Mufasa. All right, so now here's the story of Israel. And actually, Selena, come on up here. Israel, at one time, was one nation under King David, but it didn't last beyond his lifetime, and instantly, Israel split into two parts. Judah, which is in Jerusalem, 
where the kings of Judah ruled there. And then the rest of the group, Israel, went to the north, over to that side, if you would. And they basically had two kings. They even created pagan places, two temples to worship. This is basically a family feud, Hatfields and McCoys, Judah and Israel. They also had people outside of Israel. And so Joseph, oh, you know what, I'm gonna grab you. Come on over here real quick, there you go. I'm just picking on the teenagers because they're just good victims. They were a little bit above Israel, but there's a country, we know it today as Syria. There were a couple of kings that were around there and their names aren't that important. Here's what happened. Everybody was worried because Assyria was growling at everyone. There we go. Syria was, as in, was in trouble as much as anyone else. So Syria and Israel talked to each other and they say, hey, let's get on the same team. We can't defeat these guys on our own, but maybe if we join together, we can totally win this battle. So the two of them take a walk over to Judah. Why don't you do that? Why don't you go visit Judah? They walk over to Judah and they say this to Judah. They say, hey, join our team and we'll band together because it'll be three against one and we'll win and you needed to do it because the Assyrian army was the most horrible war machine to ever walk the face of the earth. When they came to a city, they would peel the skin off of people that were trying to escape. They'd stretch it out, dry it out, put it in posts and create billboards that were facing everyone inside saying stuff like, you're next. Then when they got your city because you had to open the gates because you were all starving to death, they would take all of the people, cut their heads off, pile it up, level the city, and say this, what, this is what happens if you choose to fight against Assyria. People were terrified of them. But while all, for all intensive purposes, while all Hades is breaking loose around everyone, God speaks to Judah through the prophet Isaiah. He says, I know you wanna try and take control, I know you want to try to work your problem out in your own strength. Do not do it. Trust me. And while God is saying to that to the king, and he says no to his neighbors, they say, fine, you don't want to join us? We're going to kill you. We're going to replace you with a different king, and we'll still get your country to be on our side. How many of you ever feel like you have enemies on every side of your life? Just, it's not bad enough that that thing bugs you, but then all of a sudden these things start bugging you. And just when you thought you had a little shimmer of hope, it seems like all hope is gone. It's in that moment that God says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. This is what's going on in Isaiah's day. Now listen to this, I'll read it to you, starting at verse three. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet King Ahaz, with your son, I'm just gonna skip over names here real quick, and at the end of the conduit at the upper pool in the highway where the washer's field is, and say to him this, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Oh my goodness, there are times where I know God's saying, don't be feared, don't be afraid, but have you ever heard God say to you, please stop talking, please stop talking, please stop talking, stop talking, stop being afraid, be careful, you know what? Some of the worst mistakes we make are when we're under pressure and we're surrounded by fear and God is like, hey, be careful. Be quiet. Don't fear. And do not let your heart faint because those two smoldering stumps of firebrands at their fierce anger, resin in Syria and the son of Romelia, 
because of Syria and Ephraim. And he goes on to say a whole bunch of stuff. Don't be afraid of those guys, even though they want to replace you as king. God says this, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. And then Isaiah says to him, he says, hey king, God wants to give you some hope. Ask him for a sign. And the king, I don't know if it's just despair. I don't know if it's just cynicism because he's wavering saying, maybe I would be better off going with these guys. Have you ever found, like when you're in the middle of a difficult situation between a rock and a hard place, the things that you'll compromise to just kind of get yourself out of trouble, where if we had enough time to step back and look at it, we'd be like, what, am I crazy? They hate me just as much as they hate me. Isaiah comes out to him and says, ask God for a sign. The king says, I'm not gonna ask for a sign. He says, well, the Lord's gonna give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth. And you will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And he continues to say basically this, before the kid is old enough to say mama and dada, before he's able to tell the difference between what's right and what's wrong, I'm gonna save you so fast, it's gonna happen before that kid even reaches that age, phase and stage. How many of you have ever found your life between the lesser or the greater of two evils. You don't know where to turn, you don't know what to do, and all hope is gone. God comes to you and says, be careful, be quiet, and do not fear. I'm with you, and I'm gonna give you a sign that I'm with you. I'm gonna send you my son. And Matthew reaches into that world of Isaiah and assumes that you understand everything that I just explained to you, throws it forward into his world. There's no enemy named Assyria, there's an enemy named Rome. There's no King Ahaz, but here comes King Jesus, born of a virgin. God says, I'm gonna deliver you and I'm gonna help you and if God can do it for Isaiah and he can do it for Matthew, my friend, good grief, he can do it for you. And Jesus is the sign that there's help and there's hope. Stop freaking out and panicking. Stop talking. You create more problems talking it too much and too loud and too fast. Stop fearing because fear makes you do things where God has to say, be careful. You're gonna get yourself into worse trouble responding. What does God say? He says, be still and know that I'm God. Here's the sign. I am on the way. Help is on the way. You'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. The government will be on his shoulders. You'll call him wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God. And I am sending him him to deliver you, David, you, Shay, you, Selena, you, Cam, you, Pam, you, Juan, Shannon. He's an individual savior. He knows every hair in your head. He knows every word before it reaches your tongue. He was born with such amazement I think God just chose the virgin birth to do it that way. He could have done it anyway, but I think he did it that way to just drop our jaw to say, man, if God can do that, then he can do this in my life. That's why God does miracles sometimes to say, hey, if I can do this here, then I can do that there for your life. I'm not just a savior of Isaiah or Matthew. I wanna be your savior. Guys, you can just quickly sit down, but thank you, Stephen. You can stop growling. So it, Bible says it happened in this way and it 
happened in Isaiah's day that way. And if it can happen this way with Matthew and it happened that way with Isaiah, then God can make this and that happen in our way, in our life, in our day, in where we're at, in our complexities, in our enemies, in our hopes, in our fears, in our disappointments, in our hour of need. And God brought the Son of God into the world, fully man, fully God, not just to save Isaiah's people, not just to save Matthew's, but to save every single one of us to any who would offer him the right to be Lord and Savior of their life. And you know what's interesting? The emphasis of all of what Matthew's trying to say and all of what Isaiah's trying to say is not on the fact that she was a virgin, although that's a part of it. The emphasis is on the fact that this is the sign. This is the sign. How many of you could identify with me? There was a moment in my life I was so far from God. I said, oh God, if you're real, Just help me. If you're out there, show me that you're real. How many of you ever prayed that prayer? It's a common prayer, probably getting prayed right now by 10,000 people around the world. Oh God, give me a sign. God said, I'll give you a sign. Just open up the book. Look at Matthew chapter one. My son is the sign. I sent him into this world. And he's a sign for you, not only that God loves you, he saved you, he died for your sins and resurrected you from the dead. Death is not the end, it's only the beginning. He is the Lord of hell, death, and the grave. Our enemies are not Assyria and our enemies are not uh, Rome, but they are hell, death, sin, and the grave. And he beat them all with the resurrection. He says, I'll be your savior. I'll help you in your situation. I'll be your God. Jesus isn't just... God and he's partly man, he's not partly man and a little bit God, he's fully God and fully man. I'm the sign, I'm the one for you to look to to see not only how God will help you but also how you can become more like God because I gave an example. I didn't do it in 24 hours, I did it over a lifetime because you and I have to live for Christ over a lifetime. That's why he lived his life. He could wrap this whole deal up in a millisecond but he gave us an example. He's the sign not only that God is coming and saving us and help us on the way and that Jesus is real and we can find forgiveness of our sin. He's also the sign to say, this is the sign that tells you next destination, holiness. Next destination, ending addiction and taking on uh, joy. Next destination, here's a sign. This exit, be like Jesus. Exit off the highway of depression. Exit onto the ramp of, of, of celebration and hope and forgiveness. He's that sign as much as the others. And he comes to us as God did, and he says this. I love how Jesus said it. Jesus said in John 17, 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The same love that Jesus felt when God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and he didn't even do anything, is the same love that God has for you even if you haven't had a second to live a godly life for Christ. He looks at you and says, this is my little girl, this is my little boy, this is my son, this is my daughter. I'm pleased with you, not because of what you do or don't do, not because you did more good things than bad things, I'm pleased with you because you're mine and I love you and I wanna save you and I'm proud of you and I care for you. If you're here today and you feel like you're the furthest person from Jesus in this room, can I tell you something? You are no more loved than the person in this room that feels the closest to him. Jesus loves you, faults and all. He didn't come to shame you for your sin. He came to save you from it. John 1.14 says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He shows us also that 
We can be an example. And what's the first thing that Jesus says to the disciples? Follow me, follow me, follow me. Matthew would say it, hey, I know I'm writing this story to you about the birth of Jesus, but let me tell you how it happened to me in Matthew chapter nine, verse nine. After Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man, Matthew, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And he followed him all the days of his life. And because he was following him, we have a gospel that tells us about the life of Jesus because that guy never stopped following him. Maybe you're someone that Jesus said, follow me, and you followed him a little bit, but it's been a while since you've continued to follow him, pursue him, chase after him, open up this book called the Bible. Don't just let Sunday be this place where we talk to you. It's not enough. It won't do it for you. This is the place where we come together and get encouraged. God wants you in his word so that he can continue to talk and speak into your life, hope and and encouragement and truth and power to be who he wants you to be. And when you do that on a regular basis and you become not only a Christian, but a disciple, a disciplined follower of Christ, eventually you become an example to others. And Paul said it like this in 1 Timothy 1.13, follow me as I follow Christ. And he doesn't say that arrogantly. He says, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. But if you're looking to go in the direction of Jesus, I'm headed there. You want to come? Come on. Just keep following me. Keep following me. And I think the beauty of this story is, is that although in his humanity he gives us a chance to be what it is to be a godly person, it's also in his divinity that he shows us that he does for us things that we never, ever could do for ourselves. Listen, you know what the lie of Christianity is? Is that ask Jesus into your heart, he'll forgive you of your sins, but as for the rest of the story, you better obey the 10 commandments and get it right because if you don't, you're going right to hell. You'll never be good enough. Now don't get me wrong, the Bible doesn't say I'll just wink and blink and let things slide. There's a difference between walking in the way of the sinner and trying to go in the right direction and fumbling the walk. There's a difference between that. There's a difference between sustained sin and disobedience with no care or concern of wanting to get it right. That's not what I'm talking about here. But probably most of you are like most of us in that you're trying to do this thing right, but you just come up short all the time. He came to save you for that. He loves you faults and all. And he says, listen, I'm gonna die for you, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus wasn't waiting for you to get your act together so that you could show up and he say, okay, you can be part of my club now because you're a really, really good person now. No, Jesus, you know what I love Jesus? If he were here today, I don't think he'd be in the church. I think he'd be in the bar. He'd be in the crack house. He'd be in the cardboard box. He'd be in that apartment where people are living together and saying, hey, what are you doing? I got a better life for you. I love you. I want to change you. And, and, you're, and this is the thing is, is that in humanity, we're doing the same thing Adam and Eve did. Oh my goodness, I'm so embarrassed. I just want, and Jesus just comes up and says, listen, live bare before me. I know who you are anyway. I'm not here to shame you. I'm here to save you. And I rose for you. And, John, and Romans says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And it doesn't have dominion over us if we're in Christ. And we pull it all back to this one moment where we realize he never would have died for us and he never would have risen for us if he wasn't born for us. 
Matthew says, I know this is a truth you haven't experienced. I know it sounds crazy. I know it's wild, but man, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. And it's so incredible. And for centuries, God spoke about how he would undo what man did. And all the way back in Genesis, he said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and end the story. And my friends, everyone in the Old Testament looked forward to that moment. And every one of us is looking back, but God has signed, sealed, and delivered salvation for you. You wanna wait until you're good enough, you're never gonna get there. You think that Christianity is about being good enough? No, it's about people that know that they're a good God and, and that we there's no one good but God, and that he loves you and I just as much as, as the, the respectable people as those that aren't respectable. The holy people as much as the simple people, but he wants us us to take an example from the sign of his life to say, you can live holy. You can walk straight in a crooked world. Listen, sin, sin nature is not a crutch. When you invite Jesus into your life, you can be free of addiction. You can be free of depression. You can be free of, of, of um, lethargy and apathy. And you can be on fire for the King of Kings. And you can go around this world and bring hope to people. And you can say to somebody who's at that place, hey, be careful, be quiet, be still. Jesus is coming to this world to save you. You're never gonna be good enough. You're never gonna be strong enough. Let Jesus save you. And if you're here this morning and you need Jesus to help you and you want that hope this holiday season, I'd ask every one of us to stand to our feet and we're gonna invite him with prayer. Lord, in the name of Jesus, this is how the birth of your son took place. This is how it happened. It's not the way we would have it happen, but this is how it happened. And Lord, truth isn't subjective here. It's happened this way. We would have done it a different way, but this is the way that you did it because you didn't want us just to see you as God. You wanted us to see ourselves in you, that we have potential for great good if we yield our lives to you. It happened that way in Isaiah. And Lord, this morning we ask you to change our way. I'm just gonna ask everyone to bow your head and close your eyes. And as you're here, if you'd say, Pastor, please pray for me. I know that my life is headed in the wrong direction. I know that I believe that Jesus is Savior, but He's not my Lord. I know what you're saying about like walking and making mistakes, but that's not my MO. I'm actually headed in the wrong direction and I need God to save me and intervene. If that's you, I just, with every eye closed and every head bowed, respecting people's privacy, if that's you, would you raise your hand? Just say, pray for me, Pastor, pray for me. Thank you, thank you. There are others of you that you love the Lord just like Matthew and Isaiah, but your life is surrounded by some really difficult situations and you're like, oh my goodness, how am I gonna, oh Lord. And when I'm talking about being quiet and being careful, you're like, I need some of that. Pastor, please pray for me. I need God to help me be still and know that he's God. Raise your hand real quick all over this room, all over this room. And there are others of you, you're saying, I'm okay, Pastor. I can be a Christian and not be a train wreck. I'm not like wrapped up in sin and my life isn't falling apart. But man, there are probably some people out there that need me to share this truth with them. But when I get ready to do it, I just feel weird and I could use some courage because this is the best message 
and the best kept secret in the universe. Pastor, if that's you, I want you to say this. Pastor, pray for me. Raise your hand. Say, pray that God would give me boldness this holiday season. Here's, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing this song and we're going to make it our prayer. If you want to come forward and pray and have a moment with Jesus, you can. If you want to sit in your spot, you can. But here's the song. It's, my heart's an open place. Come to me and have your way, Lord. I'm open. Listen, there's an open window here and I want to take it. I want every one of you just quickly close your eyes and pray this prayer with me. For the sake of those you're here, you've never asked Jesus to be Lord of your life. I want to give you a safe moment to do it. We're going to all pray this together. But if you do this, I want to encourage you to come up to me or one of the other pastors and say, I prayed that prayer and I'm believing for great things in my life. Pray this with me. Dear Jesus, you are the sign of how I can live my life. You are the sign that you will help me. Forgive my sin. Jesus, your death on the cross should have been my death. Your resurrection from the dead can be my resurrection. Raise me from my dead sin and make me alive in Jesus. Be Lord of my life. Don't just help me think about my sin, but help me see through Jesus how to live for you. Father, you've heard the prayer of these people. Lord, I pray that you would invade their space. You have people all over this world and people in our lives that we, we, we don't even know about who are followers of you, but this church is the place to grow. And Father, I pray this next few weeks, those people that prayed that for the first time would read the first three chapters of Matthew and the first three chapters of Luke and would look to Jesus, the reason for the season. Father, right now, I also pray for everyone that lifted their hands saying, oh God, I don't know what I'm gonna do or how I'm gonna do it, but Lord, help me to be careful. Help me to be quiet. Help me to be still and without fear. You are my savior and you will help me. You brought me out of a lot of messes. It does. This one is no different. It's no different than Isaiah's day and Matthew's day. You did it then. You can do it now. And lastly, Lord, for those of us that are saying, I want to share the good news of Jesus, but I don't know how. Father, give them courage. Lord, give them some of these Christmas cards and help them to just simply invite someone to do a wonderful enchanted event with families here. And God, we pray this Christmas season that there will be many people who will come to know the love and forgiveness and acceptance of Jesus Christ this holiday season in this church. We thank you for what you've done here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing it.
lift up your hands to God today and just say, Jesus, I'm open. Lord, change our lives. Make us more like your son. Lord, help us not just to be Christians in name because we say we go to a church or we, we give once in a while. or we. Lord, help us to be like your son, Jesus. Lord, that loves people, that cares for people, that helps people, that, that heals people. Lord, we're open for you to do what you want to do in our lives. But it's not going to happen by accident, church. The only way this happens is when you intentionally choose each day to do what God would want you to do and let your feelings catch up to you later. Jesus said it like this, blessed are you not when you think these things, blessed are not you when your family talks about these things, blessed are you not when you read these things. He said, blessed are you when you do these things. Lord, help us to be doers of the word. Go with us in the grace of Jesus this week and this month. Lord, I pray that every card for this holiday season that goes out, would make an impact with grace and love to the power and glory of Jesus. Thank you for being born for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you go. You can stay, you can pray, you can sing. Have a wonderful week.